You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody, uh, to our Twitter space. Thank you for joining today. My name is Tamanna Salikadeen, Director for South Asia Programs at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And today, uh, we'll be discussing the devastating floods and ongoing humanitarian crisis in Pakistan. USIP is a national nonpartisan independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. Uh, just to start, I have a few housekeeping notes. This conversation is being recorded, so if you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be part of that recording, and the recording will be made available for replay on Twitter, and we'll also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series, which is available for you and uh, anyone else on our website at usip.org and on all major plat podcast platforms. We may use the recording on other platforms as well. We have some questions in advance, but we invite you to submit your questions for our discussion as you listen. If you'd like to submit a question, the best way to do so is send a direct message to at USIP. You can also reply in the thread for this space or tweet your question with the hashtag PACFloodsUSIP. We'll be, moderating, uh, we'll be moderating speaker access to keep the conversation flowing, so asking questions via DM or reply is the best way to get involved in the discussion. So let's kick it off. I'd like to introduce our amazing panel of speakers. First, we have uh, Dr. Asfandiar Mir, who's a senior expert at USIP, where he focuses on international relations uh, of South Asia, US counterterrorism policy, and political violence. And he has a regional focus on Afghanistan and Pakistan. Previously, Dr. Mir has held uh, various fellowships at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. We're also very pleased to be joining, be joined by Arifa Noor, who is a very prominent journalist for over 20 years, joining us from Islamabad, Pakistan. During her career, she has held senior editorial positions such as editor Harold and resident editor Don Newspaper, Islamabad. With her considerable print expertise, she's now hosting a nightly prominent political show on Don TV while continuing to write a regular column for Don Newspaper. Her coverage of the floods has been extensive and excellent, so we're very excited that Arifa is joining us today. Uh, and last, but certainly not least, we have Jemaina Siddiqui, who is our Senior Program Officer for South Asia, USIP, and her work focuses on peace and conflict, democracy and governance, and the intersection with climate change and other environmental issues. She's a longtime development professional who has overseen several projects in Pakistan. Uh, she spent the summer in Pakistan and recently returned, seeing the beginnings of the floods there, and has written extensively on uh, the climate crisis. So I want to turn uh, to set the scene a little bit for the floods in Pakistan. You know, after experiencing its hottest months in 61 years in April and May, Pakistan has hit by what the UN chief is calling a monsoon season on steroids. Pakistan has long been considered one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change in the world. And yet, despite a history of intense floods, many of us remember the 2010 super floods, the country was ill-prepared for this year's monsoon season. The country continues to face intractable political and economic crisis, and these have hampered Pakistan's capacity to address the ongoing fallout, particularly the worsening humanitarian crisis. And even though these floods have been going on for several weeks, the water has yet to recede and the crisis is ongoing, especially in places like Sindh and Balochistan. Current numbers are over 1,300 deaths, over 33 million Pakistanis affected, and huge losses in infrastructure, livestock, and agricultural crops. Estimates of economic impacts are over 10 million U.S. dollars. And this is at a time Pakistan is really already suffering from uh, economic and political crises. So today uh, we're going to kick off the discussion with the current situation and hear about Pakistani government response, what the international community can do, how we got here and how we can move forward. So let me see if Arifa is uh, here on online. I think she is, but as a listener, let me just check with my team if... Arfa uh, is online. Arfa, can you, uh, are you there? Okay, I think we're gonna, before, we're gonna try to get Arfa online uh, to tell us a little bit about the current ground situation. But I, I wanna go to Jemaina Siddiqui who can give us a little bit uh, a background of how we got here. Why, why are these floods, these monsoon on steroids, what is it about this crisis? Um, that got here and why is it so bad? Why is Pakistan so vulnerable to these climate shocks? And 
is this flooding related to climate change? Can you just spell it out for our audience? Sure. Thanks, Manna. I hope everyone can hear me. Um, so Pakistan, uh, it's, a, it's a twofold situation. Yes, climate change has played a significant role in the scale of this flooding and the, the rains that they've seen this year. But this is, shouldn't be surprising because in 2010, we also had uh, a taste of kind of how we would see urban flooding in Pakistan. And then, of course, 2010. Um, this is a combination of both uh, climate change uh, weak uh, governance and uh, preparedness uh, on insufficient preparedness for the crisis. So no one country could be fully prepared for the magnitude of the, the crisis and the floods and the rains and the aftermath that Pakistan has seen. But I think it is um, a, a failure in part of the disaster management agencies, the, the science side of it, the meteorological, it's a combination of and thinking about how Pakistan could have better prepared and better be uh, knowing that there there are seasonal floods and knowing that we were seeing such a massive heat wave earlier in the spring. So it is a combination of the extreme heat and that has led to the weather systems that caused this flooding. And on top of that, I think, you know, lessons were not learned from 2010 on where infrastructure should be built, where houses should be built. And so that is why you're seeing the levels of devastation um, that uh, across the country. Thanks, Jermana. I, I want to turn back to Arifa. Arifa, can you, you're in Islamabad now, you've been covering the floods. What is the ground situation? I mean, these floods have been going on for several weeks, yet really in some areas there's no marked improvement and the water is still not receding in places like Sin. Uh, I know we're in the first phase, the rescue phase, but if you can talk about what's going on, how is the government military response? Where are you seeing the worst flooding? What are the obstacles uh, to, to the first phase of rescue efforts? So, as I said, um, you know, as you guys have mentioned, there are aspects to it. One is, of course, climate change and a completely unexpected uh, weather pattern, which began with an early summer, um, unexpectedly long uh, summer with extreme heat. Then not just unexpected rains, but also uh, what we call cloud bursts, which are seen to be different from monsoon rains, plus the Belt glaciers. So that's had an impact. And at the moment, what is happening is that, of course, water has receded from at least uh, the major parts of uh, three provinces, which is Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, Balochistan, and uh, South Punjab. But Sindh is uh, heavily flooded. And there are two reasons for it. One is, of course, the fact that uh, the, the average monsoon rain, the way it takes place, is that it begins from the north of the country. And by the time they reach Sin, the pattern has weakened a lot. So, you know, the, 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 the amount of rainfall that takes place or is experienced by Sin is far less. And this is exactly what happened in 2010 also. When, when, when the, even though there were what we call super floods, most of the impact was felt in South Punjab or Khyber Pakhtunkhwa uh, up north. But this time around, what happened was that the monsoon rains entered dire Sindh directly from India, from Rajasthan and Gujarat. And that is why Sindh has seen such uh, heavy rains this time around. And because Sindh is much lower, it is more or less at sea uh, level, the, the, the water just cannot uh, drain out very easily. There will have, you know, the government will have to think about it. When you talk about the damage, that's extensive. I mean, if we are talking about just the numbers itself, um, the finance ministry's latest numbers talk about, uh, you know, a damage or uh, uh, the impact to GDP by over 10 to 12 billion. They expect 9 to 12 million people to fall uh, below the poverty line. Earlier um, assessments that had been made by Uzair Yunus based on official figures the livestock damage is about $184 million. Agriculture is $2.39 um, billion. Housing is about $3.96. Reconstruction costs are being estimated to be up to $9 billion. Um, you know. So it is extensive. And at the same time, what we're talking about, um, a huge number of people that have been displaced, uh, particularly in Sindh at the moment, which has the highest number. Um, livestock damage is high in Balochistan. Uh, road networks, again, in uh, uh, Sindh has been affected the most. Uh, bridges have been damaged the most in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. So again, it varies, uh, you know, in terms of you just look at the infrastructure, agriculture uh, damage. It will vary from province to province. The governments are still um, in the process of assessing the damage. Rescue and relief is taking place. Uh, it is constant, but it will take time, partly as mentioned earlier. 
the planning was uh, pretty sketchy to begin with and it begins from the fact that you know very few were prepared for this kind of um, a, a monsoon um, um, season the if we do not have the weather warning systems um, earlier with the extreme heat you know when you talk to climate experts they said that well you know the monsoon will not be a, a routine monsoon but they weren't sure whether it would mean less rains than normal or heavier rains when they did speak about heavier rains they really did not expect this level what we are talking about is more than 400% uh, you know rains in balochistan itself were 400% heavier than they are on average and 500% above the normal in sindh in july alone which is one month we usually have a monsoon pattern in which the rain cycle comes about once or twice we're talking about according to the weather experts we're talking about uh, six uh, cycles uh, this year alone and that is uh, basically you know we're talking about 1200 people that have died 1000 others that have been injured 1 million homes that have been uh, damaged um and uh, uh, you know again as i said that this these are more than just uh, the the usual floods when we talk about the super floods as they are called of 2010 they were basically riverine of uh, you know which is the average or which is what we expect and are um, perhaps uh, you know trained for or uh, generally but this year it has not been so as i said we are talking about you know excessive glacier uh, waters we are talking about um cloud bursts we are talking about uh, riverine floods but only in the north of the country what happened in balochistan and sindh is basically you know a completely different uh, pattern of rains in itself and that has been the problem uh, and of course again now we come back to the fact that the government was not prepared for it partly because over the years we have uh, you know the bureaucracy has weakened considerably um we not have a local government system if you and so it's a very what we call a very top down affair in terms of how to look at any kind of a calamity and how to manage it um, so you know and then with the 18th amendment and the devolution we still have not gotten to the stage where there has there is enough coordination and planning across the problems whether it is in terms of water management whether it is in terms of calamities and everything that needs to be managed somehow requires the chief minister of the four provinces or the prime minister to get involved it's not the kind of planning which works bottoms up in the sense that you have local governments or you know very effective bureaucracies that are looking at the state of affairs at the local level so you know they would be planning in terms of the fact that yes okay this if this area is to be evacuated what are the number of people we have people we have how are they to be evacuated where are they to be evacuated to we have no plans as such you know if we just look at the fact that uh, flooding has happened in uh, 2010 even the year after that was not uh, you know very average and that we were expecting changes to the weather pattern so there are basically no plans in place to figure out how that evacuation is going to take place what will uh, be the resources that will be needed to it if people have to be evacuated at the community level where are the spots which are relatively higher if you know can of course we have to keep in mind the fact that what happened in sindh was so catastrophic that we were not expecting um, you know these kind of rains but even then uh, you know are there any higher spots around where people can be evacuated to once they are evacuated there how quickly efficiently can tents be brought to them so there is a problem with procurement at the moment but even in spots where we can say that the the material is present or the tents are there they're not able to get them to the people because the plans are just missing on the ground very interesting arfa i want to so, ask uh, these obstacles you're talking about in the rescue period how will they translate as we go into you know after the first few months when we go into rehabilitation reconstruction uh, how will the government military response be and what obstacles do you see there well i think um, it will again be from place to place as i said that you know when we talk about khyber pakhtunkhwa um there we have had we experienced this before and we experienced it in 2010 when we saw the floods because they were basically you know the the, uh, the the kind of floods that we've seen before the riverine floods as we call them and it was highlighted again and again in 2010 that part of the problem is that construction is taking place too close to the river bed and 
it's too close and then it's not being built up to a standard where you are sort of taking into account the fact that there might be floods which will uh, you know be so heavy that you have if you have construction close to um, the riverbed how will it stand up to that kind of a natural calamity and nothing like that happened and what uh, so that is a problem urban flooding for example is another aspect of it which takes place more or less we can say year after year in uh, you know the urban centers like karachi and we know partly what the issues are again it's an issue of governance and a issue of infrastructure development of um, you know encroaching upon uh, the stormwater drains and and their blockages and we are not able to do anything about it because this would require the kind of sort of um, you know reform and governance that somehow the state just doesn't seem to have capacity for anymore so the rehabilitation will be a little easier i think in the sense that the governments by the government by then will get its act together the military will but i think the financial aspect of it is going to be the biggest question mark because yeah yeah definitely uh, you know uh, you we were talking about it earlier this is something we've spoken about uh, you know within among uh, pakistanis also that somehow when it comes to pakistan and natural calamities for whatever reason it doesn't get a lot of uh, international attention the kind of money that will be you know coming in for the earthquake in pakistan if you compare it to say the i think the haiti uh, uh, disaster took place then the the number was just you know in terms difference between the numbers was stark and mm. the second of course here is that of course you have to keep in mind the economic crisis in pakistan so what we are yeah. looking at also is that the government has to think about the fiscal space and um, you know obviously this will take time because we are still at the rescue uh, the stage so you know the sure. other humanitarian organizations take precedence but the imf will and the government will have to talk but i mean are we just talking about you know a few grants a few loans a few concessions is that going to make the difference or if i'm going to come back to you on economics yeah. i think we have to have a fulsome discussion on the economic crisis but i i want to turn now to uh, dr aswanth armir to talk a little bit about the political situation that arfa alluded to uh, i mean we have provinces under different political party control um you know people have said basically in balochistan there is no political ownership given that there's really no leading political party taking uh the lead there besides the prime minister's visit but even before this monsoon season even before the flooding uh the political climate was very unstable today we see imran khan uh the islamabad high court uh deciding to indict him on contempt charges the country is really focused on this political crisis but how has this really exacerbated the lack of flood relief or problematized how the country can deal with these uh this catastrophe thanks for that question uh, tamanna so uh, so you know really starting from uh, from how how you played it out uh, i think we have to consider how pakistan is organized politically these days uh, i think pakistan's federal government is in a unique place it's a coalition government led by the pmln with significant representation of the pakistan people's party but the federal government led by pmln uh, or at least pmln itself doesn't have direct control of any one of the four provincial governments Uh, so in punjab it's a, a coalition of the pti and pmlq which is in charge uh, in khyber pakhtunkhwa it's the pti which is in charge and in sindh province uh, it's the the people's party and finally in balochistan the it's a is a you know balochistan specific party by the name of balochistan awami party and of course as you note political instability and polarization in the in the country is at an all time high and we can trace uh, the the current mood to imran khan's ouster in a no uh, in a vote of no confidence back in april uh, since then the country has appeared divided and those divisions appear to have really uh, calcified imran khan is running a very aggressive anti government campaign uh, he is is also feuding with the army he he holds the army and specifically the army chief uh, general bajwa to have engineered his his ouster so he's very critical of the army these these days um and despite the floods he hasn't uh, slowed down and i think we see that in the court cases against him uh, including a critical contempt of court proceeding that you alluded to all of that is feeding uh, contention uh, in the country I think it's also important to consider the nature of Pakistani federalism it's complex especially when it 
comes to disaster response. So disaster response capabilities are not in one place. They are divided across the federal and provincial governments. And then the military and its senior personnel also have um, an important role. They control substantial uh, response capabilities. Um, so the current disaster really requires both the federal and provincial governments to step in, especially if you look at the scale of the damage, the breadth of the damage. There's just no way for the Pakistani government to respond effectively uh, without these uh, these different federating units uh, coordinating with the, with each other. But the PTI and PMLN are not even on talking terms. So as a result, in Punjab and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, uh, where the provincial governments are either run or dominated by the PTI, I think the political infighting is likely to have significant consequences for the for the flood response. In Sindh, uh, there should be more coordination because, um, uh, you know, the provincial government is run by the People's Party. It's also part of the, the coalition in, in Islamabad. And Sindh is where the real damage is at. Uh, I think in many ways, this disaster is coming a Sindh-only disaster. You know, more than 80% of, say, the house damage uh, that's being reported, it's actually in Sindh. Um, uh, more than 500 people have died there. More than 8,000 people are uh, are injured there. So Sindh is where a lot of damage. And I, I'm can, hoping... Can I push you yeah. on that, Aswandi? on Sindh. I mean, Sindh, even before the floods, Sindh had lower levels of development of health indices than Khyber Pakhtunkhwa or Punjab. Uh, and PP has long, I mean, I would say 13 plus years has, you know, they have ruled this provincial government and yet they haven't been able to deliver relief. The waters are still rising in Sindh. There's nowhere for this water to go, as RFS stated. So what is the way forward for Sindh? Is there any hope that the PVP will get its act together and can deliver aid along with the federal government? I mean, will it take the military? What is the hope for the people of Sindh? We've also heard that given the many minorities in Sindh, that the relief is not being delivered in an equal way across the province. Uh, I think uh, the, uh, the, the scale of the damage uh, in Sindh raises a lot of questions about the nature of governance over there, about the quality of governance um, led by, by the People's Party over the last decade. And, and I think this is a big political challenge for the, for the People's Party as well. And for now, we're not seeing a lot of direction. Uh, you know, in, in, previous, in response to previous disasters, uh, the People's Party really leaned into its uh, cash transfer uh, uh, program. So in, you know, after the 2010 floods, uh, they turned to what's called the Benazir Income Support Program and really built it up and, and built it up into a, a credible program. But this time around, I think cash support is likely to be insufficient. I mean, just the, uh, the amount of water that is still, um, uh, you know, the, the, large parts of Sindh are still underwater and uh, there's no way where, uh, for this water to go. Um, so I think that raises questions over over how the People's Party has governed and if can if it can come up with any kind of uh, serious um, uh, you know reconstruction program. Uh, I think a lot of people are not hopeful that, uh, you know, given the, the track record of the People's Party over the last decade, uh, that it would be able to uh, respond in a, in a meaningful way. Thanks for that, Aswandir. I want to remind our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, please feel free to send questions. You can uh, direct message them to at USIP. Um, next, I, I want to turn to Jemina and talk a little bit about, you know, people have said that Pakistan is the canary in the coal mine for climate change and the, you know, the effects of climate change. Um, climate justice activists and proponents of compensation for climate change loss and damage both domestically and internationally have been using Pakistan as an example that the wealthy Western or global North uh, countries must pay their fair share. And noting that Pakistan contributes less than 1% uh, of, you know, uh, carbon and emissions to climate change. So can you comment on this, this idea of climate change reparations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yes, Pakistan does have a strong case to make under the Paris Agreement, which does talk about loss and damage. Um, but this loss and damage is not taking in it's not meant to take into account the damages and the losses from illegal infrastructure, uh, especially ones that have been built on along waterways, as RFI has mentioned. Um, the scale we've heard from both RFI and Sundar about the numbers, the the amount of that will take to rebuild and re, you know and provide relief after these floods are staggering. Um, but I, country is going to provide this amount of money to Pakistan to rebuild. Pakistan also needs to invest in its own preparedness, its own uh, climate scientists. It needs to think about how they can better prepare for these disasters. Um, 
cash support is allowed. I think the, the biggest problem Pakistan is facing right now is the fact that, the, as Asmundia and others have mentioned, the economy is very unstable. You know, they just received the money from, from, from their, the next IMF tranche, but that's not going to be enough to provide the support that's needed for relief efforts for the cash transfers. So they need to think about more strategic ways to, for prevention. Um, interestingly enough, because COP27 is going to happen in November, I think you're going to see more of these climate activists, both domestically and internationally, uh, raise this issue in Pakistan will become that example uh, about loss and damage. Loss and damage isn't very talked about very much in these discussions, not in, in you know, previous uh, uh, COPs uh, over the last you know, few years. But I think now even other country, heads of other delegations from other countries will start raising this issue because, as you said, the Manda, you know, the UN Secretary General has said that this is a monsoon on steroids and then it's today, it's Pakistan. Tomorrow, it could be their country. So I think people are reflecting on the fact that we are seeing more extreme weather patterns and that there is going to be significant damage due to this, how much it's due to climate change and how much it's due to poor governance. We've talked about this, uh, both Arfa and Asfandiar, but um, I think you're going to see more discussions on this moving forward over the next few months, especially when we finally understand the, the financial toll that this flood has taken on the country. Thanks for that. Arif, I want to come back to you on the economy. I mean, the economy was already, um, you know, facing near default conditions. I think Sri Lanka was a, a warning sign for Pakistan, but uh, the steep decline of the rupee and even before the destruction of so much agricultural uh, crops and livestock, Pakistan was facing 43% food inflation. So we have an IMF uh, program that's restarted, first tranches come in, but it pales in comparison to the estimated damage. I mean, you mentioned Ozair Yunus's estimates, I think somewhere in 10 to $13 billion range. So even a $1 billion tranche is, is very little. And um, I want to I talk to you about what is the reality uh, in terms of both austerity and the, and, the, and the conditions that the IMF is going to put on with the basic needs for people in this humanitarian crisis where, they, where we've basically destroyed Pakistan's sugar, cotton, food crops, etc. Uh, this is a well, tough question, but yes, so basically the IMF program, just to give a little bit of background, I think it's important to keep in mind that this IMF program uh, had begun ideally very earlier, and then COVID came in. Um, and I think that COVID was the first time it was sort of put, put on hold, partly because what was happening under COVID the world over was exceptional. And the Pakistani government at that stage also, keeping in mind what was happening the world over, just went into, you know, spent lots of money that because it seemed to be the only way to deal with that pandemic. Um, as a result, because of the way our economy is structured, it overheated, as we call it colloquially. And um, we ended up going back to the IMF. It basically meant um, with the rising petrol prices, it meant, um, you know, hiking the price of electricity, gas, the petrol prices, then came the political instability. And all of that led to, uh, you know, led to sort of the IMF program getting delayed and the, the condition coming harsher. So what we're dealing with right now, especially in terms of food inflation, is partly because a lot of it is connected with the uh, fuel prices internationally. And um, so however much of austerity that we can talk about or whatever, the impact on the people is in terms of sheer inflation. And as you said, the program in itself is worth very little. Um, but when we talk about the reconstruction efforts, um, as I said, you know, this is a debate or a discussion that we're yet to have within Pakistan. But I think at the moment it is very clear uh, that the kind of spending this will require will end up undermining a lot of the commitments that the government has made to the IMF because, you know, uh, the import bill will go up. Um, the spending of the government will increase. These cash transfers will make a difference, but how effective they will be in, you know, being able to counter everything that has happened, not much. It's just going to be a help to a few, uh, you know, the families that we're talking about. But in terms of reconstruction, how is that going to happen? I mean, these are all, uh, you know, questions that at the moment nobody seems to have an answer to. Uh, but, and to talk about the concessions that the IMF will give, it will seem, to me, it seems like a drop in the ocean. And how this problem is going to be addressed uh, I really don't have any solutions at the moment or any answers to tell you the truth. Yeah, it is really a dire situation. And I think you're absolutely right, Arifa. Uh, you know, everyone's focused on the immediate, but there is going to be a longer term crisis 
that both leaders in Pakistan, but uh, internationally, we all need to be thinking about. I want to turn back to Sundiar to talk a little bit about international assistance. Uh, you know, we haven't seen as much, these floods are now going into several weeks. We haven't seen as much international attention as one might have hoped and as much assistance. Today, though, we see Samantha Power, USAID administrator, flying over Pakistan, tweeting out pictures of, uh, you know, basically never having seen so much water on land. Um, later this week, we have the UN uh, Secretary General, Antony Guterres, going. He's made an emergency appeal for assistance. But we have very small sums, I mean, from the UK, Japan, Canada, the US. Uh, we have other countries, Pakistan's, uh, you know, friends, Saudi Arabia, Japan, China, Qatar, Turkey, Turkmenistan, UAE, Uzbekistan, who are sending food and emergency relief commodities via airlifts. But it still seems a too small. And then, are we are, is NDMA and others logistically able to deliver these things? So I wanted to ask you both. You know, what is it that the international community needs to be doing? But two, why do you think the the attention is just not really there? Sure. So last time Pakistan had a floods on this scale, and that was in 2010. There was a massive international response, and there were various dimensions uh, of the international re relief uh, and reconstruction effort. Uh, but, but one data point I can I can provide here is uh, the amount the international community provided uh, in just cash support to be transferred directly uh, to, to, to people who were affected. So oh, around a billion dollars were provided back then. USAID provided close to $200 million. Uh, the UK government provided $100 million through their uh, international development arm. The, even the Italian government provided uh, some north of $50 million. Um, the World Bank stepped in in a, in a big way. Uh, and for now, we are not seeing kind of support uh, come through. So take the U.S. government. Uh, I think there are some high-profile visits happening. And so there is a possibility that there might be more aid in uh, in, in order. But, uh, but for now, the current announcement is of $30 million, which is probably a mix of, um, uh, of in-kind support as well as, uh, you know, more direct cash support. The Chinese... Um, government uh, hasn't stepped in a major way until now. Uh, it has offered uh, fifteen million dollars, you know, worth of uh, of uh, you know in-kind aid, material aid, tents. Uh, for example, the Chinese Red Cross has provided a small amount. India has offered condolences, uh, and and so you know, to your question as to why this is the case, I think partly it's due to some real donor fatigue. Uh, the country that are most likely to help Pakistan are countries that Pakistan has been asking you know, money and help from over, over the course of this year uh, to meet its, uh, its external financing needs. So take Saudi Arabia, for example, or the UAE or the Qatar, uh, or the Qatari government. Uh, Pakistan has been uh, has been asking them for, for cash support to just meet its uh, external financing obligations. Uh, but but I think it also speaks to Pakistan's foreign policy and, and relationships. I think they're not in a great place. The reason that Pakistan got a lot of help back 2010 was that Pakistan was uh, was a more critical uh, partner um, of the United States uh, in the in the war in uh, in Afghanistan. And now that the United States has disengaged from the region, I think there is sort of less appetite and interest um, over here. And I think the Chinese have their own sort of frustrations with uh, with the status of the the various BRI projects in the country. So it's a mix of fatigue and the state of Pakistan's foreign policy. But hopefully that, that will change just because the scale of the disaster is is um, is so consequential and I think it can bear on uh, on Pakistan's already sort of fragile uh, economic uh, and social political environment as well. Thank you for that, Asfandiar. Uh, we have a comment from a listener saying, the people of Sindh are not in a position to pay electricity bills and buy utilities. The government of Pakistan should give interest-free loans on easy installments to the public for solarization. I want to turn to you, Jemina. What do you think of this comment? And you know, more broadly, what is the role of the international community, public-private partnership, and Pakistani government investments? Uh, because this crisis is not going to resolve itself in a few months. I mean, the damage to infrastructure uh, across parts of Pakistan are going to take years, if not decades, to to get to recover from. Uh, thanks, Saman. And though he's absolutely right, Sindh is, you know, I, across the country, people are suffering. And in Sindh, it is very acute and compounding the actual scale of disaster from this floods um, is is making things worse. Um, Interest-free loans, yes, I think this is, you know, a broader issue is what is the role of the international community? So Asfandera has given insights onto kind of what investments and, and support was made in 2010 versus now. And maybe this is, you know, there's economic issues and crises everywhere. Most countries are not able to give as much as they have in past years and past crises. Uh, this is 
you know, looking forward, like you said, this is this is could be years, if not decades, to rebuild. The international community, besides their their relief efforts and the funding they provide for that, should think much broader and longer term. You know, support for public-private partnerships. Uh, internally within the country, domestic uh, companies and um, conglomerates working with them to see how they can scale up things like solarization. They can think about how to support the next generation of climate scientists, urban planners who can actually develop and uh, climate resilient infrastructure because people are still going to build along waterways because of necessity. But how can they be built in a way that they are resilient to future subsequent floods or heat waves. That is one other area. Um, Pakistan is one of the largest Fulbright programs in, in the world. This is maybe some place the U.S. government could think about setting aside a certain number of scholarships for people to work on climate scientists as climate science, to work on issues of green uh, engineering, uh, or proper urban planning, because these are skills that are very much sorely lacking in Pakistan right now. Um, and then you know, I think the, the British government could also think about the same with their scholarships uh, because there are a large number of Pakistanis that do go to the UK as well to study. So thinking about how they can set aside and, and bolster the, the technical capacity internally and then supporting the government, you know, the climate ministries providing technical assistance to the National Disaster Management Authority, their provincial counterparts are also ways that the international community can support Pakistan in the long term. Thanks for that, Jemina. Um, Arif, I want to come back to you on, on two issues. One on, uh, you know, the rise of waterborne illnesses and, and the particular vulnerability of women in this crisis. You've talked about this on your show, and I think it's important to highlight um, right now the incidences of waterborne illnesses like diarrhea, malaria, skin infections have have increased, you know, somewhere between 70 to 97%. So, uh, I mean, it's really scary numbers coming out of both provincial health systems and WHO. At the same time, a lot of health clinics and uh, hospitals have been damaged or destroyed because of the flooding. Um, women in these flood-affected communities lack access to hygiene supplies and are also reporting protection concerns such as exploitation, harassment, and violence, and are particularly vulnerable in flood-affected areas. So I welcome your comments on these issues and how both governments, but non-governmental institutions can respond. Um, yes, this is a particularly important point. Um, and you know something that gets um, uh, sort of, how should we say, um, ignored in most uh, natural calamities, especially of this scale. I mean, just at the moment among, you know, the reports that have come in, they're saying that about we have about, you know, 650,000 pregnant women and girls and 73,000 of them are expected to give birth um, in the next month. And obviously, uh, whether it's the north of Pakistan or Sindh, where we are not sure where the water will drain out, they will lack um, um, uh, medical uh, treatment and access to healthcare, which is always an issue. I mean, it's not as if to say that, you know, if the floods had happened, um, healthcare would not be an issue for women, but it has now become particularly problematic. Um, there's another point to it also, and this, this is something that, that is reported each time there is a calamity, that when uh, particularly women and uh, are moved out from homes and into camps or temporary uh, displacement centers, wherever they are set up, their movement is really restricted. You know, hygiene and health is affected because access to, uh, you know, bathrooms is limited because you're sharing space with a lot of strangers. Just, just the simple act of answering nature's call becomes a bit of a problem because you're not sure when you can do it, how you can, you know, navigate that space, which is now occupied by a lot of people that you're not related to. So these are all issues. And uh, but I would, I mean, in all of this, you know, one is always sort of uh, searching for the little bit of hope. And I think this is one time, um, regardless of how many disasters we've covered, whether it's the 2010 um, um, floods or the 2005 earthquake, that the organizations that are work, the philanthropic organizations that are working in all the affected areas are particularly aware of women issues. So the other day, for example, we interviewed um, the, 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 the gentleman running Al Khidmat, which is the charitable arm of Damati Islami, which is a right wing party. And, you know, he asked me before the show began, he said, you please, can you ask me a question about women? Because I would like to point out that we are in particular need 
of um, you know uh, uh, you know sanitary napkins and whatever else they need clothes and i'd like to put out a specific appeal so that when people are thinking of uh, contributing they should think about women in particular and there has been a lot of discussion which is a welcome change from previous years where people would not even want to talk about the issue but this will be health in itself is a particular concern um and especially once the water recedes from sind because obviously there is the issue of cholera and dysentery and all the the health ailments that come because clean water in itself would be a problem so right now you know there is particular focus within the organizations and the government uh, governments themselves about the fact that we have to get the chlorination tablets to the people so we can provide them with uh, clean drinking uh, water but also you know after monsoon is the period where dengue becomes an issue it already is in karachi which is the biggest urban center um, in sindh and uh, doctors are already faring and you know we've seen footage we have seen um, uh, videos on twitter and other social media platforms of you just think it's a black cloud or it's a dark bush and it turns out that they're just mosquitoes because they're they're, they're collecting over the water that is standing so i think the immediate concern is definitely that we they need to prevent dengue and malaria from breaking out and that's why mosquito nets is another uh, item that uh, you know especially uh, the health practitioners and uh, the organizations that are working out there are particularly asking for because they feel that can make a difference so yes women and children will be particularly affected and um, it's a conversation that we need to have again and again in terms of uh, you know the 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 healthcare that can be provided to them that should be and uh, you know already there i think just today i saw that even the punjab government has sent small teams of doctors over to sindh to set up medical camps thanks for that any comments very briefly on uh, the non governmental organizations and the charities out there you mentioned al khidmat which is aligned with ji it seems to be the only political party that really can get out and deliver assistance you can you talk about the landscape and then especially people overseas want to donate and want to help i mean our organization but there's a worry that this money disappears and it doesn't get to the people so can you very briefly comment on sort of uh, aid and assistance by charitable organizations and ngos Uh, yes i mean obviously you know the way organizations work in pakistan there are a number of them which may not uh, you know be uh, sort of have very transparent accounts but i think generally uh, organizations like al khidmat or akhwat or there in balochistan there is a brsp they're doing wonderful work because they're constantly on the ground these are organizations that had been doing you know commendable work in earlier calamities or even in um, a situation covid or then when we had for example urban flooding in karachi a couple of years ago so they're on the ground they're constantly working and they are there and people are contributing you know even imran khan did hold a telethon and he got he the party claims that they got uh, you know promises pledges up to 5 billion or whether they sort of do uh, actually uh, the, the money is delivered is another question but people do contribute and i think the money does get to the people also but here again with natural cal- calamities when you have governments and and um, and you have organizations working and particularly in a situation like this you know there are a lot of individuals who get together and they just start to contribute whatever little they can coordination is again a big issue and again this is somewhere the state has to get involved it has to pro- to provide the coordination for these organizations to be working so for example you know an organization or a small group of uh, individuals could land up in a particular village and start feeding the people there but somebody has to know how many days they are going to be there who exactly are they feeding when they will leave so once they leave somebody else can fill that gap so you know direct them to the right place we have uh, for example we now also have had reports especially in sin and this happened earlier in the 2010 floods also that you know um, in good meaning individuals would send up trucks of food or clothes and then they would uh, report back in dismay that you know the truck got looted at a certain point they were hoping to reach xyz but you know midway they stopped people turned up they took the clothes some of it could just be you know survivors were desperate sometimes it's also crime so again as i said you know a lot of coordination is needed and that coordination is not just in terms of logistics but it's also in terms of having the right data there because again however much we may think or assume 
that when a com- community is evacuated, they all end up in the same place. That's where the local authorities have set up a camp. That is not really the case. You know, some people will go there. Some people will, um, you know, not move into the government-identified camp because they're if they have any surviving animals, they're not perhaps allowed there. Um, a third case would be that however badly damaged a home is, you know, the, the inhabitants don't want to leave it alone. So they will continue to live on the roof or nearby. So communities do get spread out. And uh, you have to have an effective local government or a local authority on the ground who's keeping an eye on all of this. Thanks for that, Arifa. Very important points. Uh, Sandhya, very quickly, I want to turn to you. I mean, with the no confidence motion against former Prime Minister Imran Khan this year, I mean, this year has been marked by, uh, for Pakistan, even high level of civil military turmoil. How is this uh, friction uh, coloring the flood response? So politics around the the impending uh, transition or appointment of the army chief in November is at an all-time high in the country. And of course, it is an extremely appoint- important appointment, uh, both for Pakistan's domestic politics as well as for uh, regional politics. It's hardly any news uh, that the army chief uh, makes the important foreign and internal security policy calls in Pakistan. And Imran Khan is not concealing the fact uh, that he wants his preferred general uh, to be the, the next army chief and doesn't want the PMLN and People's Party to be appointing the next chief. So far, he's struggling. He's out of the government. They're in government. Uh, and, and it looks like they will they will make this uh, this appointment. We've heard some speculation of another extension for, uh, for General Barza. Um, and if, you know, if he wants, he could use uh, the floods to, to make an argument for an extension. Um, and the military is involved in the relief effort. We have seen the military's VR machine kick in, uh, provide coverage of its contributions. Uh, and in some of the coverage the army chief has been featured as well. Yet I don't think the coverage is unusually strong or the messaging in general has that the slant uh, making the case for an, uh, an extension. Um, so, uh, you know, all in all, I think civil military issues are a, are a distraction from flood response. Uh, and the, much of the media is really focused on that instead of covering the, just the, the scale of the disaster and all the problems that people our experience, and I think that's the the that's the main way in which uh, the civil military crisis is is affecting uh, the the relief uh, the relief effort for now. Thanks for that, Aswandiar. Um, Jemaine, I want to turn to you, sort of to wrap up our discussion. I mean, uh, Pakistan's climate crisis is this is not the last one. Uh, Pakistan, with climate change, it's likely to face more disasters like this. And are also similarly placed countries around the world, and especially in South Asia, are vulnerable to climate change disasters. So what is the advice you give to governments to help prepare and help uh, strengthen their preparedness for such disasters? Uh, thanks, Wanda. So I have two points I'd like to make. One, for Pakistan itself. So the prime minister has set up a flood response coordination center. This does not go far enough. This really has to be broadly climatist and it can't be politicized. You can't have, uh, you know, political actors be responsible. This is where we need technocrats. And if Pakistan wants to learn from the experience of 2010 and these floods, they will need to understand that there's a job for experts, not former government officials, not retired military officials. They need technical expertise in climate change, in urban planning, in disaster management. And taking those lessons from the last few um, uh, disasters is extremely helpful. Um, And then I think for the region, this is an opportunity, you know, to move beyond the challenges that countries in the region have been facing. And there's been talk about, you know, Pakistan learning the lessons from Bangladesh on how to respond to floods because Bangladesh has faced so many typhoons um, and cyclones in, in, in recent years. And so this might be a place, you know, if I'm thinking wishfully, is where SARC could play a, a role. And SARC has been you know, put to the side over the last, uh, you know, half decade or so, um, and it hasn't had the ability to bring countries together. But a regional response where they're learning lessons, they're coordinating, they're sharing ideas, uh, sharing best practices. I think could be the way forward to revive regional cooperation on this issue. Thanks very much, Jemaina. So another area where the lack of integration across South Asia as a region really does hurt 
every single country in the region. Uh, Arf, I'm going to give you the last word. I mean, our listeners uh, are, are concerned about Pakistan. What is the advice that you would ask for both U.S. policymakers, international uh, aid agencies? What is the best help and um, focus that, that we can do right now sitting outside of Pakistan? What would, what would you sitting in Pakistan want to see? That's um, a tough question to answer, I would say. But I think what, uh, you know, when calamities like this happen, I think regardless of what, of course, you and Aswadiyar spoke about earlier, that, the you know, perhaps not enough attention has been paid or enough money has come in. But I think it's very easy to lose focus uh, in, in the earlier days, which is, you know, when the disaster strikes, that there is a lot more to it. The little that I have seen from the 2005 earthquake, earthquake onwards is that help does come in, even from the country itself, society itself, and from the outside world. But it's hard to sustain it because this is a long process. You know, we're in the early days. We're just talking about rescue. There is going to be relief. There is going to be reconstruction. But more than that, um, this is this will have to be a long-term process because for uh, Pakistan can prepare better for the floods but it cannot address it because the cause is global. Uh, climate change is a reality. Pakistan does not really have a carbon fo footprint that, um, you know, uh, that can compare with the kind of impact that the country has witnessed, especially in the summer. It's just going to get worse with every year. And how to deal with it, how to be better equipped for it. And this is going to be, I think, perhaps even longer than the reconstruction process also. Um, and that is what... I think the rest of the world needs to uh, focus on that this is, these are Pakistan's problems, but they're going to have very long-term social and economic uh, impact. You know, this kind of a displacement, the numbers that we're talking about, the, this is going to impact the entire society, the fabric of Pakistan. Urban centers will see the displaced people come in. That's going to put more of more burden on the cities itself. It will change our electoral politics. It will impact the economy. Um, you know, these are all things. And to just sort of talk about it in terms of, you know, money coming in from UNDP for the rescue or concessions from the IMF is really not going to address these issues. And we will also, I think Pakistan needs help with just figuring out how to deal with these, uh, with this weather change. So, for example, I was hearing a space yesterday and um, they were talking about the fact that, you know, Obviously, a lot of this was caused by water flowing through the country from the north to the south. We don't have any hydrologists who are experts who know how to deal with this. You know, there's so much to it, the, just in terms of the size of the crisis and the various angles to it. So expertise will have to be developed in these various areas of flood management or water drainage or reconstruction of um, our, we have agriculture, it's an, you know, a, a large part of our economy is agriculture. But if the climate change, even apart from the floods, the extreme heat that came in, what does this mean for our entire crop cycle? These are these are huge questions. And because we do not even know at the moment, we can't even be sure what the next monsoon season will bring. Will it bring rains like this? Will they be, um, you know, fewer? Will will this become a yearly event? Will this, um, you know, will next year be completely different? We have more questions than we have answers to at the moment. And I think the global community has to not just find the answers, but to frame the questions to begin with. Thank you, Arifa. That was a, a very good advice. And we hope we can continue this conversation uh, to frame those questions, not just for Pakistan, but I think for the world as we face climate change um, and conflict due to climate change. I, on behalf of USIP, I want to thank our audience for joining us. And I want to especially thank our, our great panelists, Arifa Noor, uh, Aswandi Amir, and Jemaina Siddiqui, all for your insights and for your comments. Um, and all of us here at USIP, our thoughts are definitely with the people of Pakistan as they're suffering from these floods. And uh, we continue to be focused on, on the issue. So thank you all very much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.